1: The narrative around disruption in biz- in the business world has largely focused on how technology is the change agent. But our next guest believes this isn't the case, as the nature of competition has changed. He says that the concept of decoupling is what is driving this momentum. When a startup in the retail sector provides value, it influences legacy players in the sector and creates a disruption the startup hopes has long-term effects. We meet Talis Teixeira, a professor of business administration at Harvard University. He spent eight years researching dozens of startups and tech companies, has written a new book based on his work, Unlocking the Customer Value Chain, How Decoupling Drives Consumer Disruption. Talis, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Uh, So in part, you're talking about the customers driving this disruption. So I'll, I'll ask that part of it in a second. But why do you think then we have had this this philosophy that it is the technology that is doing much of this?
0: Well, uh, pure and simply because uh, it's uh, sexy and interesting to hear about new technologies, right? We, uh, the, the media company fuel, fuels all of our needs for uh, uh, figuring out what are the new tools and, and uh, new technologies around. And and basically, it just creates momentum in the market, and, and the companies are developing these things. So there's a lot of PR agents out there. Uh, and we do have a few, you know, very prototype examples of actual technologies uh, uh, being game changers, right? The, the mobile phone being one of them. But uh, by looking at many startups, and uh, I went into many startups and, and visited them and also visited the incumbents that said they were being disrupted by these startups, I started realizing that there's very, very few technologies that are really game changers, disruptors in that sense. The vast majority of the cases, these startups have the same technologies as the incumbents that they're fighting. And so um, this idea that technology is disrupting markets is not really the, the, the majority of the cases.
1: So explain this uh, the idea of, of decoupling and, and how it plays out.
0: Uh, sure. So, so basically, um, to understand decoupling, uh, um, you need to really understand one of the core concepts that at Harvard and many other business schools like Wharton, we teach our students. Um, and I call it the customer value chain. And basically it is um, looking at uh, each of your customers or potential customers and mapping out all of the activities that they are required to do in order to acquire products and services. So, uh, for example, if you're, um, you know, if, if you need to take multiple medications uh, uh, Um, and that's 20 million people in the United States need to take three or more pills per day. They need to go to the doctor. They need to get a prescription. They need to get the prescription filled. They need to get their medication. They need to take it home. They need to sort it out because they might have to do one after lunch, another at night, and so on and so forth. And then they need to take the medications, replenish, and so on and so forth. So these are all activities required for uh, patients to take their meds and this is uh, um, the customer value chain and the reason I call it the value chain is because when you look at any customer in any market buying any product you can classify those activities that customers have to go through in one of three types is it a value creating activity and so taking your pills is actually a value creating activity is it a value charging activity meaning do you have to pay for it in this case, paying for the medication, paying for the doctor. Uh, um, those are value-charging activities. And then the last class is, is it a value-eroding activity? So for me as a patient, going, the physical activity of going to the doctor doesn't create value for me, right? It's a necessary evil, so to speak. The activity of having to order or buy or pick up medicine is also value-eroding activities. The reason I do it is I have to. There's no other alternative. So um, when we look at the customer value chain, there's these three types of very distinct activities.
1: We are joined by uh, Talis Teixeira of uh, Harvard Business School. Your comments are welcome at 844-Wharton, 942 Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I see you refer to a couple of different instances uh, of this decoupling, and one which you bring up uh, involves Sephora uh, and and how it was impacted uh, to a degree by Birchbox.
0: That's right. So, so you know, your, your previous question, what is decoupling? Decoupling means essentially a startup looks at this customer value chain and sees all these activities that are generally provided by one established player. So in the beauty industry, uh, uh, the established retailer is Sephora. And so I have to go to Sephora and I have to have a need and I have to sample beauty products because what goes well in my skin might be different from yours and so I have to talk to a consultant I have to choose which, what to buy I have to buy it, I have to pay it, I have to take it home, I have to replenish it. These are all the activities in the customer value chain and what Birchbox and Ipsy and many of these other uh, uh, subscription box beauty uh, uh, startups decided to do is say we're going to focus only on the first part, only on the sampling of beauty products. Right. And so basically they allow you to subscribe and and get these samples of beauty products at home you don't get the full size items and then you can buy it anywhere else you can buy it on sephora amazon or more recently in some of their own websites so this idea of decoupling is looking at one activity in the customer value chain and deciding to do it much better than the incumbent and that's how these startups are disrupting markets if you imagine before Sephora did all these activities. Now they're, they've lost this primary activity to Birchbox and Ipsy, and this is very disruptive to their business because it reduces the traffic to the store.
1: 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. So with with this activity going on right now, Talis, uh, how is this going to impact the quote-unquote traditional retailer. How do you think?
0: Well, so I visited many retailers. So I visited Best Buy. I actually visited Sephora and quite a few other ones, and even uh, mall operators like Westfield and talked to them. And I would always ask the same question. I would say, you know, they would come to me and say, you know, we're being disrupted. And I said, okay, what is disrupting your business? And by and large, I would get... Uh, answers in one of two camps. Either startup X is disrupting my business, right? Or tech company, Amazon or Birchbox or some, they would point at some uh, startup there or they would point at technology, right? And in the case of Best Buy, they say, you know, the mobile phones are disrupting our business because people are showrooming in in our stores. And if... You think that a startup or a technology is disrupting your business, their natural course of action is either to acquire the startup if the price is low or go into a price war or acquire the technology, right? But as as I've accompanied them doing that, this hasn't solved their problems. And so we needed to reassess and figure out what is disrupting your business. And my key finding in the book, after looking at many industries, is it's the customer that's disrupting these businesses. Changing needs and wants and changing behaviors of customers yeah. are actually the cause, the root cause of this huge shift of consumers away from large retailers, in, the, in your question, into other startups and other online
1: retailers. But is part of that also kind of the convenience that we're seeing coming from from certain retailers for the customer, making the, the experience so much easier than maybe it's ever been before?
0: So, so you're you're true, you're right in one aspect, but there's other two other ones. Okay, but what consumers care about, and when you know what I broadly think about all products and services, we consumers pay for all the goods and services all around us. With three currencies. They pay with their money, with their time, and with their effort. And so, to the extent that you look at it and consumers want to get a better deal if you think about it that way, they are just trying to reduce these three costs. And when you say convenience, it's an effort cost. Can I make it more convenient for me? In the case of Birchbox versus Sephora, it was definitely convenience, right? I want to sample these beauty products in the convenience of my home. And so that was the disrupting force. It wasn't that Birchbox had a website. It wasn't that Birchbox had the ability to put samples in a box and ship it to your house. This is trivial. All companies can do that. It was actually this reduction in cost. In the case of PillPack, which was acquired uh, a few months ago by Amazon for a billion dollars, um, what consumers wanted was you know, medication that was correctly allocated to them, timely, very quick to be delivered, as well as convenient. So, that is one aspect. But in other cases, it's also about prices, right? Uh, cheaper prices. I'm, I'm sure if you used Uber or Lyft before, you know that the price is so much cheaper than taking a cab. Yeah. Obviously, they're you know they're subsidizing to some extent, but the convenience and, and the reliability—all these things—are causing Uber to be disrupting the taxi industry. It's not that Uber has a technology ability to summon a car. Um, When I did research and I looked back at the early days of Uber, what happened is when you wanted to call an Uber, and at that time there were only black cars, you would actually text message or call them, and at the other side of the line there was an Uber employee that picked up the phone or looked at a text message and tried to call black car operators to send a car your way. Nothing was automated, automatic as it is today. That's now, after billions of dollars that they've uh, funded. Before it was just this kind of Desire of people to not rely on the very bad taxi industry that was available to them. But they didn't have any technologies that they have today, for example, that anybody else couldn't have access to. All they had is a GPS and a phone.
1: One of the other examples I've heard you talk about is Borders, uh, the old, old bookstore chain, uh, which uh, obviously was, you know, if you go back 15 years or so, uh, it was fairly popular. But uh, obviously it had a, a quick downturn in the uh, in the U.S. economy.
0: So that's right, yeah. We all know what happens to to, to these big bookstores, right? Uh, uh, First Borders and now Barnes & Noble is closing doors left and right all around. And when you look at them, they also had websites. They also had uh, um, e-readers, just like Amazon, yet that didn't secure their survival. So it wasn't technology, wasn't Amazon's technology early on that was disrupting them, right? There was something else. And it was actually Amazon's ability to transform what we call an experience good, which are products that you can only assess the quality after you experience, and it used to be for us books. Right. You would buy a book because you would take a, a look at it. You would read a little bit about it and Amazon transformed that by not by making people not really needing to touch a book and read it and sit down a little bit, just like the bookstores offered us. and now you buy books left and right without experience it per se, right? You look at the reviews, somebody told you about it, you go Amazon and you click and you buy a So these are all changing consumer behaviors. When you arrive at a, a – when somebody tells you about a book, you go online and you buy it on Amazon. When you arrive at an airport and you just decided to call an Uber instead of go to the taxi cab, stand when you uh go with your family out for vacation decide to stay in somebody else's house and you look for airbnb and stay in a state of hotel these little decisions that we consumers make multiplied by millions of people doing it all the time that is what's disrupting these markets not the technologies
1: so how how, what do you see then as the keys kind of to to building a business that would be so-called disruptive
0: so you know uh, in in my book i provide I, i First, I went to many startups at the time. In 2010, I went to my quote-unquote first startup, which was Facebook, and, and I saw Mark Zuckerberg, and I saw the executives, and I asked how are you planning to disrupt the media industry, right? And then I went to Netflix, and I uh, went to Airbnb, I went to Birchbox, I went to other less-known startups like Klarna, like Tro, um, and I tried to understand what they were doing, and I saw there was a very common pattern uh, regardless of what industry they were, and so I provide this in my book in one of the chapters, I even uh, uh, go to the links of saying there's kind of a recipe for disruption, which is a series of ingredients and a, a logical step that you should do in order to try to uh, uh, disrupt the market. And by disrupting a market, I mean in a short period of time, try to steal a sizable amount of market share from the established players. So it, first, it requires you to map out the customer value chain. Look at your customers or your prospect customers that you would like to acquire and and look at all the activities that they have to do, right? So in Mm -hmm. the case of uh, uh, buying a television, you need to go to the store. You need to look at the options. You need to choose one. You need to pay for it. You need to get it delivered, and you need to install it and so on and so forth. And find one activity that – well, second, then you need to classify these activities into value creating, value charging, and value eroding activities. Uh, just like I mentioned briefly. And the third uh, um, step is actually to find the activity where consumers are not fully satisfied. That is the weak link in this chain, in this customer value chain, and that is your beachhead. That's the opportunity for you to break away and steal customers. The key point of decoupling is not to replicate what established players do. It's just to find something that consumers are very unsatisfied, and if you offer something better at yeah. that point, in that part, you will steal away customers that decouple. And then the way that you do that is by reducing one of three costs reducing monetary, reducing effort, and reducing time costs. So, the way to do that, you use business models and technologies.
1: So, do you think then that this is going to, th- this kind of mindset is going to continue to see the growth of these startups as we move forward, as long as you have that understanding uh, of having that uniqueness about? your business where it is in the scope of a a particular sector.
0: That's right, Dan. So, you know, from one point of view, it's a big puzzle, and it was a big puzzle to me. How do these big, gigantic companies, right, big retailers like Best Buy, like Sephora, telecom operators like Comcast, auto companies like Ford, uh, uh, industrial companies like GE, they have you know, so many resources, billions of dollars, they have the best people, they have, you know, access to all the technologies that they can buy and build. Um, How can they be disrupted by a startup? Oftentimes with students from Wharton, from MIT and Harvard that I've, you know, had in my classes, Mm -hmm. it's just puzzling how can a, you know, a small group of people, and by and large, most of them do not even have the industry experience, right? right? Dollar Shave Club, was founded by a guy who had no clue about the razor industry. Right, right. And he built a company that sort of had uh, a double the market share of online razor sales than um, Gillette, which is a company from Boston. And so the, the explanation, as I found, is to focus on one thing and do it much better. One thing, not all of the things that the established player does. Focus on one thing and do it much, much better. And these startups have been able to do that.
1: What about the, the, the collecting or, or finding of of your customers or your followers and, and how important it is, and you talk about this, you can't really go one by one, two by two, five by five. You have to really find a, a bulk out there in, in the short term so that you have a base to work off of.
0: Yes. So um, when, I, when I looked at, there's a chapter in my book that talks about how to start uh, a platform business. And those are distinct from other startups, but uh, the idea of uh, starting these platform businesses, I looked in detail at the early days of platform businesses like Uber, Airbnb, Etsy, and so on. And I noticed that there was a common pattern in how they were kind of growing. in, in my, you know, I have a chapter in a book that says, how do you acquire your first 1,000 customers? And what these companies did very smartly and astutely is they found pockets of demand that were unsatisfied, unfulfilled by the current players. So Uber, instead of trying to go one by one, convincing each person to sign up for Uber and take a ride, they looked at pockets of of, uh, unsatisfied demand. So in certain cities, after a, a sports game or a show or a concert or theater, there's lots of people scrambling at the same time to get taxi cabs, and there's not enough cabs. Yeah. And so they went and they found you know, these opportunities to really acquire customers in bulk. Airbnb did the same thing online, right? It went into uh, Craigslist. And it went into conventions for example in San, in San Francisco there was a convention of the uh, uh, Democratic Party and, and there was just no hotels available on those dates and so people are willing to sp- stay in a you know somebody else's house Airbnb they've never heard of it before because it's the beginning that's the way you acquire these customers in bulk.
1: We're talking with uh, Talis Teixeira, who is a professor uh, of business administration at Harvard University. He is the author of the book, Unlocking the Customer Value Chain, How Decoupling Drives Consumer Disruption. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Uh, You know, one of the last chapters you have in the book is titled Spotting the next wave of disruption and as i was going through that i was i was thinking to myself that you know we're in a time right now where seemingly disruption is coming at business owners at ceos on such a a continuous basis right now that even if you're spotting that quote-unquote next wave you have to have the mindset that there's another wave probably coming nearby
0: that's right and and you know, I've given uh, so many talks to executives to try to understand. They wanted to understand how to respond to to, to uh, decoupling per se. You know, after I explained to them, you know, how decoupling works, but always at the end of these talks, everybody would ask me, "Okay, what's next? What's next?" And yeah. you know, you you get frustrated because you spend so much time uh, working researching the current wave that uh, people wanting to know what's next. But so wh- what I thought about it is. Well, let me explain to you how I came across the concept of decoupling this under seeing this wave because the challenge of spotting what's next is is this duality of either you spot something that is not going to happen, so you think you're seeing something that's really not happening because it's so far. Uh, uh, um, you're looking so far into the future or you're spotting something that everybody else is already seeing and so you're not actually finding something new, everybody's already responding to that, there's no much, not much benefit, it's clear, everybody, evident to everybody, right? So this ability to see something uh, before others is, is what I thought I could probably help them and in doing so I realized so first when you understand that customers are the disruptors you start understanding that when customers disrupt in an industry, they go into the other industries that they're buying products and services and do the same thing. Right. What, what we notice through the data is people who start buying on Amazon using an Amazon app are more likely to sign up for Uber versus those who don't buy frequently on Amazon. Right. And those people who are buying on Amazon and using Uber are more likely than not. Uh, uh, to um, sign up for Airbnb and start using Airbnb. And when they use these three apps, oh, my God, they're even more likely to use Birchbox and Prove <laughs> and Venmo. And so there's this domino effect across yep. industries because these are very different markets, right? So if you are in any one of these markets, you're not seeing this. Why? Because there's this research by IBM that showed between 90 and 97% of the time executives are spending their time and efforts on their own industries looking at partnerships in their industry, understanding, uh, looking at analyst reports in their industry. So you will never see a wave of disruption, which blankets by definition, multiple markets, if you're only spending time in your industry. Right. So my point was that you need to look at other industries. The problem is obviously that there's hundreds of industries out there. And so in the last chapter of my book that you allude to, I provide seven industries that you should look at in order to identify new ways of disruption. And the reason these seven industries are so is because when I looked at um, the amount of uh, um, spending by households in the U.S. in these seven industries, it corresponds to about 97, 94% of, of incomes. And these industries are basically what, what you eat, how you transport yourself, what you wear, how you educate yourself, how do you entertain yourself, how you heal yourself, healthcare, care, and uh, how do you live.
1: I have about 30 seconds left. So then it, with all of this kind of in play, do you think that this means the potential of more M&A activity by the larger companies, but not necessarily within their own sector, but looking cross-sector for, for that next opportunity?
0: Definitely, you should look at cross-sector, but also in the book, I show many, many cases of companies trying to buy out yeah. into these new markets yeah. and having terrible, terrible results, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, Yahoo is the case. Yahoo bought a uh, uh, 100 or so companies. Most of them it failed to simulate. And so buying yourself into this is not the way to go. You should really understand your customers better, and you should really become more customer-centric and, and use this pattern as opposed to just buying yourself into
1: success. Talis, thank you very much for coming on today. Greatly appreciate it. It's a fantastic book. All the best with it. I appreciate it, Dan. All the best. Bye. Thank you. Talis Teixeira at uh, Harvard University, professor of business administration.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.